in modern software development, not only can you fix things immediately if you break them, you have to embrace a much more experimental approach. And I think if you don't, right, someone else will. I think the best way to embrace this kind of SaaS mindset, the experimentation mindset, the always be shipping mindset, is that you're going to screw up kind of regardless. So you may as well screw up quickly and fix things quickly. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Boris Jabez, CEO and co-founder of Census, a platform to operationalize data through a process often referred to as reverse ETL. Boris previously co-founded Meldium, which was a groundbreaking account and password management solution for Teams and was acquired by LogMeIn in 2014. And before that, Boris was a senior product manager at Microsoft, and they actually called it program manager at Microsoft back then, where he worked on Visual Studio, a widely adopted IDE, including by myself. And fun fact, this is a sort of crossover episode. I namely joined Boris for a great chat on his podcast, The Sequel Show, in August 2021. We discussed here on the right track how SaaS has shifted mindsets for product releases. From when you shipped software products and you couldn't really change it for years, to now when software products get shipped early and often, released experimentally and iterated on rapidly and how this shift has changed the feedback loop and made product analytics a fundamental piece of success strategy. We also talked about the amalgamation of product data and business data, and about the challenges of stale data and whether we should potentially introduce expiration dates into dashboards. We talked about how there are hidden data pipelines all over in every company, and how the hub-and-spoke model could potentially be applied to ownership of different data sets in an organization. Listen in for Boris's insightful thoughts on data ownership and making every team in your organization empowered with data. All right, Boris, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Could you kick us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got there? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Steph. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Boris, Boris Chabess. I am the CEO of a company called Census, and we build software for operationalizing data, which means you know bringing analytics into every application in a company so that business users and, and kind of people in the company are all powered by the work that analytics teams do. And I've been working on this for over three years now, and my career before that has always been in what I call building tools. I started my career at uh, Microsoft, 
uh, where I worked on Visual Studio, which a lot of people are uh, users of to this day. Uh, in fact, a lot of people in the data world are discovering using a, a code editor, which is kind of interesting. And then I started a company uh, about a decade ago called Meldium that was a security company helping people manage their passwords and these kinds of things. This is, of course, a very impressive background, I have to say. I'd say it's eclectic. It's eclectic for sure. I mean, uh, Microsoft for seven years, that is probably a very strong kickoff into a, a strong product background and likely the reason why you went on to found you know, to date, two companies, but, you know. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your role over there and sort of how that... Yeah. Not only did I start my career at Microsoft, but I started it in a time when the web as a platform for applications was just being born, right? So it was before, you know, Google Apps and all of those kinds of applications. We were just at the birth of what we now today call SaaS, <laughs> And so the majority of software, not just at Microsoft, but everywhere, was built to be in a box, right? Uh, this is what we used to call it. And you work on it for long periods of time and then ship it out for the world to use for you know, potentially up to you know, nearly a decade in a supported fashion. And so as a, as a product manager working on that, or in my case, the, the Microsoft title for this was a program manager, the onus on getting it right was very high because you couldn't iterate on the product on a week-by-week -week basis, the way we can today. So today, when you have a piece of software and people don't like something or you ship something uh, that, that doesn't really land with customers, you can just fix that. You can remove it, you can change it, you can you know, add to it. But imagine if you shipped something and it was out in the world for something on the order of like five to 10 years, right? So you would, you'd really want to spend more time gathering feedback from customers narrowing down what should be in the box and like really honing it in, not just from a bugs and, and kind of quality perspective, but also in terms of, you know, what feature should we build? What, which ones are strategic and which ones should go in a product that comes out three years later? <laughs> and so in hindsight now, no software is built that way, pretty much, maybe outside of operating systems. And so everything now we do in an accelerated fashion. So, you know, one of the things that's great is I, I learned a lot about thinking strategically in terms of multi-year timeframes of products. And I had to then unlearn after I left, you know, kind of the idea of how to ship on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Which is a lot of mm. how we, we ship nowadays. Unlearn it. Yeah. If you think about a product as once it goes out, fixing it is very difficult, if not impossible, right? So one of the most expensive things at Microsoft was what they called a hotfix. So you know, if there's a bug in your software, remember, it was on a CD, right? It was shipped around the world. And so now you have to fix it. How do you get that fix in the hands of people? Even just shipping the fix was difficult. And then how do you apply it, right? You have to be able to make a patch that runs on, on the software that people installed on their computer potentially a year later. And it has to be able to work even if they haven't installed the other patch that you released a month before. So it's a very difficult software engineering problem. Ooh, yeah. And so you are very careful about what you ship. You're, you're really trying to minimize damage. Whereas in modern software development, especially with software as a service, not only can you fix things immediately if you break them, you have to embrace a much more experimental approach because 
you have the opportunity to embrace a much more experimental approach. Exactly. Exactly. And I think if you don't, right, someone else will. And so shipping early and often became the new mantra. And you know, up to a point, right? Obviously, you don't want to have massive failures uh, in front of customers, even if it's a web-based piece of software that you can fix, you know, within hours or days. Obviously, you have to be careful here as well. But it should shift your baseline to why not ship it now mm-hmm. versus when you ship software that's in a box that's very hard to update, your default. I used to say this. This is a very famous phrase I think, inside Microsoft that I've since then kept I think it's used in other companies too, which is that every feature, every idea started with negative 100 points because the potential danger of like the problems that it causes are very high. Mm. Um, there's also user overload. People shouldn't have too many features, right? You should often like focus on, on a few things. But it was this way of thinking. And I think when you can ship all the time, you, you can flip that script a little bit and say, why not ship this and test it and see what people say? And then you have new problems. Like mm-hmm. maybe how do you retire features that you've shipped because they don't have enough usage, right? <laughs> so I think that's what I had to unlearn. And then, exactly. you know, in SaaS or in a startup, you have to learn new things, like being able to ship quickly, but also be willing to realize that, you know, this feature that you shipped is not having the momentum or the effect or the upside or the kind of usage that you wanted. And so you have to cut it, right? Which is very difficult for most people. Yeah. I mean, you're touching on something really, really like a fundamental shift that is the reason why product analytics exists. Yeah. Right. Basically. Today, I would say. And why it's grown so huge and why we're seeing all of these companies that support people's journey on updating data sets that have to change every day or every week because you have to change your product analytics every time you ship a new product to be able to rapidly respond to the decision to ship this thing. And, you know, it was a completely different concept. Yeah, even thinking about, I mean, you always need to have creativity, right? I think analytics doesn't take away the the need for people who develop products to, to be creative. Thank goodness. Uh, but it changed the feedback loop. Right? That's, that's, that's really what it changed. To put it in perspective, the feedback loop for software that you ship, again, in a box would be, you know, you might have emails and user groups that you could find, you know, you could get in front of people and get their feedback in person or get, get on calls and, and see how they use the software. When you were trying to ship on the way to shipping, you, you would build betas, then you would put people in focus group rooms, right, with the fake mirror, you know, all that kind of stuff to try to see how they use the product. Those are the things you had to do. And even then, you're doing it on a very, very small, very small sample of the population. And so you're always getting a very myopic view of your users. And the web changed all that. And product analytics changed all that. Because now you, you can get very fine-grained information on it, most people that use your product. Yeah. Inspiration for a lot of tangents as we love to go on. So that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, People I, should realize they have it on easy mode now. Like yeah. <laughs> my my old man, my old man card is that, you know, we used to have virtually no data about how people used our products. And the data that we had was was very biased and limited. 
there are a few things here that I definitely want to touch on. One of them is the program manager versus uh, the product manager. Mm. Um, the other thing I can't just skip over the fact that you worked on Visual Studio. I just, yeah. you know, I can't skip over that. But then this thing, this concept of unlearning the desire to ship very carefully versus the ability to be able to ship with experimentation and, and rapid learning. I wonder. And would love to get your thoughts on that. Like, mm. how have people that have been in this industry for a long time? I mean, the industry, the software industry, and the product development industry, and like the SaaS industry is pretty filled with a lot of young people right now because it blew up, obviously, and became like one of the most sought after careers being in, in computer science and all that stuff and product management now. How do you think people have managed to unlearn this? that have been in this industry for a really long time? How has that shift? So I think maintaining a beginner's mind is super important in life and in any field of study, right? And thinking that you know the answer to most things is is very dangerous, even as you develop a lot of wisdom over the <laughs> over the years and eventually decades that you that you work in an industry. I think the first best way for people to not be overly careful at shipping software and instead embracing a culture of experimentation and, let's be clear, a culture of failing in public, right? Is to realize that you're going to have failures even when you prepare a lot as well. So, you know, there are really famous examples of products being carefully planned that, you know, Microsoft and other companies would ship in the, you know, throughout the last many decades. And then that would have massive mistakes. It would have super costly, you know, recalls and like I said, hotfixes. And and this is, I would actually spend a lot of time when I would interview program managers at Microsoft, I would put them in these situations, right? Where it's like, how do they think about their mental model for how to be careful, right? Especially, I, I would put them in these situations of, you know, it's now weeks or days before the CD is going to get pressed, right? It's the, you know, you're right at the end and the, the, the product or the game is, you know, is going to go out. And how do you think about bugs that you uncover in that phase where, you know, every bug that you fix could incur, like could uncover new bugs. And so just changing the code at all is dangerous. So, so, you know, we would undergo this like concept of code freeze near the end. And it was the role of a program manager to to help decide, you know, what would stop the presses versus not stop the presses, because there's a whole machinery that you're you're, you're stopping in that case. It, it, I mean, to some people who would work in a newspaper, it's almost like you're going to print the newspaper, right? So it's like, what's a story that is sufficiently important that we would pause printing the newspaper and put it in? Again, now that doesn't make any sense because you could just put it on the web. Mm. And the truth is, like, you will make mistakes in that process, and. You know, I lived through some, and the company as a whole lived through many of those long before my time uh, and in parallel. And so I think the best way to to embrace this kind of SaaS mindset, the experimentation mindset, the always be shipping mindset, is that you're going to screw up kind of regardless. So you may as well screw up quickly and fix things quickly. <laughs> That's my best way of kind of mm-hmm. making it obvious to people that even as you get older in the industry, you should uh, you should maintain that kind of mindset. Yeah, I like that. There are two analogies that come to mind for this. It's like this just staying in an industry for a while and having a difficult time adapting to it. Like, I feel like that's a classic 
story of anyone I know who's, who become, have, becomes a teacher. They become a teacher and they have this vision for changing the educational system. And they are met with a bunch of teachers that have been in the industry for a while. And they don't necessarily have the same visions, but also they're a little bit, you know, on their heels and like mm, on the fence and be like, no, 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 that's not going to work. That's the mindset rather than like, let's do this. Right. And I, I think that is a tough situation to be in. So it's probably interesting to be a part of this shift in a company that's been around for a really long time. I also think it's it's just really difficult to truly know your users. And that goes both ways, right? Where there's the famous, all the famous stories of, you know, people just wanted a faster horse, but in reality you had to give them a car, right? Mm. Or, you know, everyone was angry at every change to the Facebook news feed, but every time that turned out to be the right move afterwards, right? Uh, with tremendous societal effects down the road. And so even when you live and breathe a product, and, and the job of a program manager was very much to immerse themselves in the user, understand the needs, to be able to prioritize the work that the engineering team is going to do. And it doesn't kind of like matter how good you are, you, you will still have some blind spots. I'll give you one of the classic stories that occurred long, this was before my time at Microsoft, but it was so famous internally that it had turned into a parable for, and we was used in interviews all the time. So one of the most famous products Microsoft ever built was Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? They've been making that product for nearly 40 years now, over 30 anyway. So, you know, it's a game, right? Where you fly a plane and it's pretty boring unless you're a pilot because it's flying a plane in real time. It, it actually doesn't go fast. It's not a fighter jet game, right? You're just flying a plane. So you can get into 737 and fly it across the Atlantic Ocean. And long ago, they were about to ship the game. And it was weeks before shipping, right? And someone found a, a bug. And the bug was that there was a bridge missing. And the product manager, right, decided, well, we can live without a bridge. Like, that's okay. It's not like a runway is missing on an airport, right? Like you can still play the game. So why? Why? It doesn't matter. It's it's a bridge. Like we can. You mean like you know you couldn't see a specific bridge that was supposed to exist in the world? Yeah. So remember, the, the game is living in the real world, right? It's yeah. planet Earth, and so like you you take off from airports, you land at airports, you you have to simulate the engine. That's the core of the game. And then of course there's scenery, <laughs> and and somewhere in the scenery there was a bridge missing, right? So so imagine like. You know, just just a bridge is missing. It's like the the yeah. you know one of the bridges in London, let's say, was missing or something like that, right? And the team decided, you know, it's not worth fixing that because it doesn't affect the core gameplay. It has nothing to do with flying the plane, taking off, landing, etc. Exactly. And this turned out to be a huge debacle because the players of Flight Simulator were pilots. Like that's the player, and they don't just think about the runway and the airport and the plane and the knobs. They think about the landmarks when they fly because they're simulating flight. And this bridge turned out to be a very important bridge for pilots because it was the bridge that signaled, now you turn left and then you go land. And so they were missing this landmark. What a twist. Right. And so something that seemed trivial to the team because they were not pilots was actually a big deal to the user. Yeah. And even if you had been a pilot, could you have flown everywhere in the in the world? No, right? So you'll never know all the things that really matter to your users. Right? So 
it's it's like even the best prepared is is still going to hit this problem. Awesome. That's a great story. I love that story. And I'm not sure data would have solved that, by the way. <laughs> no, exactly. We could have seen like a lot of pilots that were flying that route just were failing miserably and going off track exactly on the spot where the bridge was. I don't know. I mean, and, and see, even there, you think about the, the feedback loop as in the data, but the feedback loop became anger, right? It was anger that you had broken a kind of fundamental user expectation, which is... <laughs> the presence of a bridge, of a landmark. Yeah, yeah, the presence of a bridge, the presence of a landmark. Exactly. That's a great story. The other analogy that I was thinking of is just the shift that's currently going on really in the analytics space, uh, which is mm-hmm. we're sort of going a little bit away from sort of like a centralized BI team model into, um, and, and, you know, analytics being something or quite many steps often removed from the product team, for example, and into being just very integrated. And that's like the biggest goal of, you know, most of the folks that I talk to is just like, there's no connection between there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, which is really tricky, one of the things I've learned is, you know, and I say this with utmost respect for everything around data engineering, and data engineering is super, super important as a role. And we do it all the time, all day, every day as data analysts or data scientists. Sure. But yeah. it's interesting to me that there is this, I've, I've seen a trend where data engineers lack trust towards the product teams or the product managers in managing their data because they're so burnt by having to pay the debt of when someone in the product team shipped, you know, bad data. And so they want to have full control over all of the data that gets shipped rather than trying to sort of, you know, bridge a gap and sort of get a little bit closer to a collaborative data governance and collaborative analytics releases. Sure. There's a lot to unpacking what you said. So I see a lot of change if you ask me in the kind of like 15-year time frame that you're talking about. One is absolutely what you said, which is there's a much greater amalgamation of data. So I think if I think back to then, there was product data and then there was business data. And those were two different worlds. Exactly. And then if you think about product data 15 years ago, and again, I'm going to this is obviously, I'm already stating the word, so it's going to date myself, but it, <laughs> it was very difficult to acquire analytical data about your products. And the way, for example, the way Microsoft and other companies acquired analytical data about usage of their products, like the way they would capture those metrics about who is using what feature and are they clicking on these buttons, was in an opt-in form, right? So most people who have had a Windows computer have seen this, uh, where you get this pop-up and said, would you like to join the you know, the uh, customer experience improvement program. If you didn't say yes to that, then there was no telemetry sent from your computer to uh, Microsoft. So they didn't know how you used Microsoft Excel. They didn't know how you used Windows. And of course, what telemetry you were gathering had to be planned way ahead of time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the, just the quantity of information was, was sorely lacking. Now, of yeah. course, Microsoft is so large that even if only 10%, it was roughly 10% of people would opt in. was still a massive number of people. So the amount of telemetry about Windows and Office was still very large. But it had to be planned ahead of time. You had to know exactly what questions and what telemetry you wanted to to ask. And then you had had no control over the biases that would be built into who opts in versus who doesn't. So, So that's... One big shift that I've seen is like we just we're now awash in data. Getting it is like a lot easier than it once was. 
you can, in fact, there are products now in for product analytics that will just capture all the data and then you let you make sense of it down the road, right? There's not even <laughs> predefined schemas you need to create. They'll just start capturing every button click, every every mouse movement it will just be captured. Hot topic, right? very hot topic. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so now on the product side, A, we're awash in data. So I think that's the biggest shift over the last decade plus. And then in terms of the whole business, I think to your point, the functions are merging not just because there's more of it and we have to kind of specialize in the processing and management of data, but because in a SaaS company, the interconnections, actually even in any company, the interconnections between product and business are omnipresent. Whereas in the connections between those before were loose, right? It was like, we sold Windows, here's our revenue, right? How people use Windows didn't matter to the finance organization. Right. But now you can think about pricing is something, for example, SaaS companies change all the time. And pricing is tied to usage of the product and like which levers should we use in the pricing models. All of that is interconnected. So you need to join more kinds of data. And the BI function cannot solely work on business metrics. They have to understand product data. And so all of that has to have merged, right? Uh, and, and I think that's what you're kind of pointing out, that you now have to have yeah. a shared understanding and a, at least a shared substrate of infrastructure so that those data can be connected. You have to be able to join that data at the very least. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and like you were talking about, you know, right now business cares about product uh, usage for a few different reasons. And one of them is also... Just and 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 you you mentioned like impacting pricing and all that stuff, sure. but also with SaaS, what we see is all of these subscription models, and ultimately, people will unsubscribe if they don't get the value from the product that they need. So uh, we've entered this shift also of business caring about product usage and product experience and retention because it highly impacts the revenue predictions, for example. Yeah. If you were to look through the various ways people use our product, I think you would see that managing like retention is near the top. And, you know, census at its core is used to sync data from your BI, from your warehouse, from your analytics function out into business tools like a CRM, like a marketing tool, et cetera. And this retention function uh, whether that's customer success in B2B or, you know, retention specialists in B2C or, you know, even worse, at like your, your cable company in the United States, they need the detailed information about what people are doing in the product in order to s- serve their users. And more importantly, to be proactive in telling them about the parts of product they're not using or catching them when their usage starts to drop so that they can hopefully right the ship. Yeah. And it's like an interesting symbiosis of automation with the product playing a role, analytics playing a role, but also humans playing a role, right? Like it might just be that you're going to automate when to make a phone call and find out what the company needs to do to to change course. Yeah, help you get better um, value from the product, for example. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I have to mention Visual Studio. I mean, this was, <laughs> I don't know, like a few years after the famous developers, 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 right? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Like, and what was it like 
to build an IDE right then at that time when this mindset was going on? Sure. Within Microsoft. Yeah. So I think I subconsciously or consciously was attracted to tools. And, you know, there's products you can put broadly in the, what I would call experiences, right? You know, like a video game is, of course, the most extreme version of that. And then products that you put in the category of tools, you know, the the Steve Jobs' famous line about, like, you know, the computer is a bicycle for the mind. And I think tools are just enhancers of other people uh, and, and the work that they do. And Visual Studio, I think of as potentially one of the ultimate tools because it is the tool of tool builders, <laughs> right? So if I give someone a tool, like a hammer to build furniture, that's great, right? It, it, the, the carpenter can, can perform better and build a more beautiful piece of furniture. But if you make the best IDE, right, the best development tool, what you're doing is helping programmers be the best versions of themselves and be the most productive versions of themselves, which is like the second derivative, if you will, yeah. on the software industry. And I, I mean, I don't think I intuited that when I first started working there, but that's what made me most excited to, to spend time on those problems was, you know, millions of developers would use our product and in turn, tens if not hundreds if not billions of people would be affected by the work that those people would do. So I'll give you a great example. You didn't even have to go outside Microsoft. I worked on a pretty low-level team within Visual Studio is a large organization. And for a while, I worked on uh, the C++ team. So, so this is the various languages in Visual Studio that you, you, you would use. So if you're in data world, you might use you know, the Python experience in Visual Studio uh, or the SQL experience in Visual Studio. And I worked on the C++ experience, which is the, the language used to build Visual Studio itself. Haha, meta. Right. Right, very meta. But also the language used to build Windows. Right. Right? So we sat underneath Windows, right? So <laughs> when Windows had a problem with the compiler, we would get called because we are the ultimate dependency. And so there was a lot of work that we would do which would be about optimizing performance of, we're talking 1%. And that 1% would mean Windows might be 1% faster, which is a mind-boggling result, right? If you can change, you know, one piece of code down at the bottom, and then with no work from any other developer, you've basically improved everybody else by 1%. is just a really, really big deal. And so I really just felt very early on this kind of the power of leverage. Mm. And I think, and I really didn't intend for this to, to, to connect to what we do now, but I think of what our product does and what I think is most important for people who work in data is today is to figure out how to magnify themselves, right? How to lever themselves, how to take their work, whether that's data engineering or analysis or predictions using ML, doesn't matter, right? Whatever you're doing, what I have found is that in most cases, it is underutilized by the company, Mm-hmm. And your true value is tied to how much leverage you have in all things. Like whether that's, you know, the reason you pay managers a lot of money is because they affect a lot of humans underneath them. So they're very leveraged by a number of people. The reason you pay a programmer a lot of money is because their line of code is very leveraged, right? A single line of code can impact millions of users. And so data professionals should think the same way. And, and 
I think the underlying mission statement of census for the user is I'm trying to magnify your output. I'm trying to say, if you have a prediction on when a customer is going to churn, don't make a chart. Let's push that directly into the alerting system of the customer success team so that you are impacting the business directly Mm -hmm. rather than potentially using a meeting, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is just great for your career. It's also just what everyone should be aiming to achieve. And and so I think I learned that working on, like I said, kind of one of the most ultimately levered tools in the world, which is Visual Studio. Great story. And I have to say, I very much relate to wanting to see the data professionals' roles be more leveraged. And it certainly is getting there so much with all of the tooling that we are currently building based on the data experiences that we've been having over the past 10 years, 15 years, and things like that. No, it's really exciting. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's it's like, here's a good litmus test. (laughs) If... To go back to, like, how would we know that that's happening? I'll give you a qualitative version, which is, will we start to hear about famous data analysts, famous data professionals? Exciting. Right? When I joined Microsoft, the most famous programmers at Microsoft, I knew by name. I never worked with them, but I knew who they were, right? And I think we are still a ways away from that. But it would start with in your company, right? So in your company, how famous is the data team or the data person or the, you know, the analytics management or, or whoever it is, right? The, the, the analytics engineer, it doesn't matter. How well-known are they? And that's a good proxy for are you impacting the business at the right level? And then, of course, the ultimate version of that is are you known in the industry, which you know, is just kind of the, the highest kind of level you can achieve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a, a chef's chef type of thing. But you know, this is a good, like I used to think about this for managing people. Like there was a lot of rules of thumb. People always ask, like, what is it to be a junior engineer, senior engineer, principal engineer, same for product manager, same for, you know, marketer, it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of ways you define your competencies and hopefully a good company lists out in relatively detailed ways, like what it means to go from level one to two to three to four, right? But a really useful shorthand I tell people, especially in larger companies, it's harder to do this in a small company, but in a larger company, you would just frame it as like, what is your scope? If you work on a single feature, right, then you're a basic program, you're a level one kind of product manager, right? Like you work on a feature. Same for an engineer. If you work on a product or like half a product, depending on the size of the company, then you're a senior. And then if, if you're influencing a whole division, then you're, you know, principal. And if you're scope of influence is the whole company, then, you know, you're like maybe a distinguished engineer. (laughs) And if you're impacting the whole industry, then you're even more than that, right? You're a technical fellow or something. And and so I think it's a really good rule of thumb for thinking about what is your level is like how many people in in your company or eventually in the world are affected by what you you do. Yeah, that's lovely. That's all of our missions, right? That are building tools for the data industry. Yeah. I really relate I have sort of a couple of ways for how I see the success metrics of our data culture that we internally built back in QuizUp back in the days. Right. And one of them was literally how much time does the data team get to actually focus on the high impact, challenging data problems versus just answering some basic questions because nobody else could do that. Right. But I think you told me once when you were talking to me about QuizUp, 
you framed one of the major transitions in terms of when a data team is valued, right? Or like kind of the maturity of a data team was when the product and engineering team listened to the insights that you delivered, right? In other words, that you drove change in the product. And that's to me a perfect example of like you're now your scope of influence has expanded. And 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 therefore you should be, you know, rewarded in in kind. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the other metric that I used to obsess over. Because when we see product developers and product engineers care about data and care about insights, that is high leverage to increase data quality. Because when the people that write the code that generate the data points from the product, when they care about the reason and the outcome of that work, as opposed to seeing it as sort of like an analytics task or like just some task that they have to complete for a coworker that has no impact on their job, that mindset shift is uh, what creates this huge shift in data quality and data impact, I think which is high leverage for just every single product team that has to rely on that data going forward. And the reason why I had the other metric, like how much time do the data professionals get to spend on or have really to allocate, to be able to spend on things like, you know, predicting retention or using, you know, or creating recommendation algorithms or something like that. All of the cool stuff that data scientists eventually or ultimately apply for the job because of, I think, When that proportion of time goes up, it is because we have created a leverage within the company with tools and with access to data so that anyone in the company can be making that impact and uh, those decisions and applying that to the product strategy on their own, even without the help of a data scientist. And so that's like a foundational leverage shift. Mm -hmm. And the intermediate step is when the data professionals actually are the persons that, you know, provide the insights. Yeah. And then ultimately, we want people to be able to find those insights, which is the same as you were describing with like, don't just build a chart, just feed it directly into decisions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to frame success. (laughs) I think it even implies something that is not necessarily true at most companies, which is the more the data organization is in demand, the more it will be involved, you will have this pressure to turn into a kind of IT organization, which is dependency for everyone in the company, but is a highly kind of reactive dependency, where it's a service-oriented model, right? Where it's, we need something, we go get it. And it's always frustrating for everyone in the company to depend on that resource. But that's just the way it's done. It's kind of like a law firm, right? It's like you, you're you not scaling through, you're kind of underlying everything, like, oh, we must ask legal, we must ask IT. But you're always like competing for resources against everyone else in the company, every other department. And the way out of that, which you make implicit, but I like to make explicit, is to model your team as a product team, right? Right. And the reason I do that is like product is a way of delivering value that is leveraged and scaled by default, right? It's, I will not hand you this, hand you that, hand you this, hand you that. I will hand you a system that allows you to do something yourself. Right. And so I think that's the, the real shift. And then 
when you think about like what you said, you said percentage of time you work on the interesting stuff versus the non-interesting stuff. <laughs> but I think the the product framing of that would be how much are you fixing bugs versus building features, right? Right. And I think the first step is moving the mindset of the organization to be what we ship, what we build is a product. And sometimes it has bugs, like the dashboard is broken, is a bug, right? And sometimes it needs to have product support, right? Where people don't know how to do something and you show them. But over time, like you should frame it as like, well, what is the next version of the product? What are we shipping next? And how do we drive down the kind of interrupts and problems so that we can drive up quality and drive up, you know, kind of the the, the big new ideas. Yeah, I love that. We've already touched on so many of the areas that I wanted to cover explicitly on this episode. But I know and I love to hear um, one of the things that make make data real for for people and make you real as a person who has dealt with data is inspiring data stories and frustrating data stories. It's also just something that helps us unite, you know, like we've all been there. Uh, so would you mind sharing an inspiring data story and a, and a frustrating data story? Sure. It's an interesting one. So I get to see a lot of those from our customers every day, but I'll tell you one from, since we're doing a walk down memory lane, I'll, I'll tell you one from the Microsoft days that was kind of, is easily Googleable, right? Like everyone can go read about it because it, it's, it was not a small thing. It was, a, in fact, a, a, an enormous kind of change. So, like, before the move to the cloud, right, Microsoft, by and large, was lots of products, but two big ones, right? Windows and Microsoft Office. And Office doesn't need an introduction. It's used by a ton of people. And both of these products have been on, like, version, you know, 132, right? <laughs> like, I think... Excel shipped for the first time in you know the 80s and was being iterated on continuously since then. Same for Word, etc. And so making real change, non-incremental change, was very difficult, right? The older a product gets, the harder it is. To, to your point about like how do individuals get out of their mindsets, it's even harder for like the older products. And one of the things that the data showed in Microsoft Office was they overlaid all of the support requests, all of the feature requests from customers. So users of Office would be like, I love Word, but I wish it could do this. I love Excel, I wish it could do this. And a shocking percentage of the time, what they asked for already existed in Word and Excel because these products have been around for 30 years and they were super sophisticated, like really, really sophisticated. And so what the product team realized or decided was that the issue wasn't that we need to build new features. It's that we need to find a better way to advertise the features that we already have. And so the data was pointing at this, right? The data was saying, look, there are, you know, setting the font to bold, okay, no problem. Everyone knew how to do that in Word, right? But there were all these other things that people didn't seem to know how to do uh, or didn't seem to realize you could do. And so they, the assumption was, the menu system was no longer functional, right? Too many things were deep in the system and you couldn't get to it through the menus or you couldn't find it. it the menus are no longer a good discovery mechanism. And so they said about, they, they went about a massive shift, which is very famous, so you can Google this, and it's like, it's still to this day the design of Office, which is the transition to what they called the ribbon. So they, they went and said, we're going to break a fundamental assumption that's been going back since the Macintosh, which is that you have, you know, menus at the top of the window with like file, edit, 
you know, et cetera. And like you click on a menu and then you get a vertical list of uh, options in that menu, et cetera. Because things are too deeply nested. So we're going to provide this new kind of ribbon, which is going to be tabbed interface. And on it is going to be like a lot of kind of large icons and large sections that in them and inside those you'll have drop downs. So it was like kind of a 2D version of a of a menu. Now this is a this is obviously the, the most significant change in office that happened in the last 20 years basically, 30 years aside from moving to the web. So it's like if you think of office and you want to summarize it, it's like two biggest things that happened was one it went to the web and two it developed this ribbon interface. Everything else is details. <laughs> so this ribbon shipped. And once it shipped and remember, the data was not, you would see proof of improvement by people dis, like using features that have always been there and now they would find them. It, 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 so so the, the, the most important thing is that here, this was a success, right? This was a success in terms of like using product data about like these features exist, but they're not being used combined with feedback data that was at large scale. This was not like three people mentioned something. It was analyzed feedback about feature requests that had been normalized and to find that like, wow, 80% of features are like already in the product, feature requests. And it was a great use of creativity, right? You took a problem about people don't know how to find features and you came up with a really interesting solution to it because you could have done like product tours or something, right? You could have solved it a lot of other ways or made more videos or I don't know. There were a lot of things you could have done uh, and, and they chose to re-architect the UI completely. But this is also a great example of a kind of failure in data. Because one of the things this failed to warn the team about is that while there were a lot of people asking features that couldn't find them, there were a lot of people who were power users of these products, mm. right? Excel especially. Excel more than anything else has a lot of power users, right? That's why it cannot be really unseated in the industry because like, Lightweight spreadsheets, whether they're made by Google or by Apple, like just do not compare to the depth of Excel. Yeah. So entire banking products like run on Excel. And the users in those places are like the pilots in Flight Simulator. They rely on very specific functionality and they use it like an airplane cockpit, right? So you and I would walk into the cockpit of a plane and we'd say, this is unusable. But to a pilot, it's very usable, right? Because it's, it's the best way we've come up with to present this information. And so what the ribbon caused is a break in a lot of the keyboard shortcuts that power users of Excel had used for a decade. Mm. Which are fundamental. You can see it when, when Excel power users go into spreadsheets and they're like paralyzed. Exactly. And so the data failed to present that kind of emergent problem from changing the user experience, right? Because you couldn't change the user experience, but also hold all of the existing keyboard kind of shortcuts because they were, the keyboard shortcuts, a lot of them were about tied to kind of flying through the menus using your keyboard. And so this caused a really big uproar. And mm -hmm. that would have been, again, I think this is a good example of like data can paint a lot of different stories and uncovering something like power users is an interesting problem in data. And even if you could, how to think about those users in terms of features and prioritization is, is also really, really hard. So, so this is a good, is a good example of like a blessing and a curse, right? Like they use data to uncover a, 
to, to get the backup to make a fundamental shift, the biggest shift in the product in decades. And it's screwed up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's also a really interesting conversation around, you know, ultimately we're trying to build a product that can do, or some products are meant to be able to do really intricate and detailed things. But it's not the best way to introduce you to the journey of getting there is to shove all of those things in your face at once. Um, and so there's this really interesting balance generally, I think, in product design where you have to make the experience feel a bit smooth in the beginning, but still manage to get people to the power user stage. Um, and so this is this is it's a really good story. And I wonder how it compares with just the general industry ribbon. I mean, ribbons are everywhere. It's just, it's fundamental right now. Like, I mean, that's, it's really interesting. I mean, you say that, right? This is one of those things that causes hubris as well. But when you've reached the scale of Apple or Microsoft in terms of your application usage, anything you do has almost a guaranteed downstream like effect on the style of every other application. So, you know, Apple started going flat, more people started going flat. Microsoft did the ribbon, and eventually more people go with the ribbon. Some of that is because we don't have the, you know, smaller companies just don't have the time to invest in fundamental user experience research. So they'll be like, let's just do what those guys did. <laughs> it's got to be correct. Exactly. They've probably learned something cool. We, we can just follow that lead. Right. For now. For now. And then, of course, a good side effect of that and something that's really undervalued in user experience, by the way. I'm, I'm sure there's an analogy here for data teams. One of the things that people don't think about, and I used to not think about it as much until I worked with, uh, especially with, um, I had a, a colleague who was dyslexic that really changed my perspective on these things, is people underestimate the importance of consistency in user experience. So, it's better to be wrong the same way everywhere in your product <laughs> than to be, you know, wrong and right in a bunch of ways. And so if you've decided, you know, I don't know, let's take an extreme, you know, like let's say when, you know, Microsoft put the X in its windows on the far right and Apple put the X on the far left, right? And I don't think either of them is correct or incorrect, but let's just take that as like let's just assume one of them was was better. It's still more appropriate for you to be consistent across every application in your system than to mix and match, right? Because mm. users really build muscle memory, to your point. Not just power users, but regular users. Mm-hmm. And so consistency really matters. And so if you're going to copy a design, that's not bad because it, it actually increases the level of muscle memory amongst the, the general public, right? So Expectations. Yeah. Missed expectations really hurts, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think something you probably think about a lot with your users and your product is how to name things. (laughs) How to name name elements in in a schema. And I think it's more important for people to come up with a style and stick with it than to to kind of be constantly in search of a better scheme. Absolutely. Plus one on that, particularly for when you look at all of that. I mean, this is a great example of leverage because when you name all of your events that represent a user action or like all of the different events that represent all of the different user actions, when you name them consistently, that is a powerful tool to enable data discovery 
for any data consumer in your organization. And the opposite is true as well. If you name them inconsistently, it is detrimental to data discovery in your organization. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Inspiring story. Can you think of a frustrating data story? I mean, I think day-to-day, I think the number one frustration I see here is that people just don't have the data they want, right? And that has more to do with you know, efficient communication and prioritizing and helping all sides realize that they, you know, they can help each other, right? By being proactive about what they want and telling them and you know, having a data organization that can deliver on that and, and in, a, in a way that is predictable. But and it's really very empowerable by making sure that each product team that needs their own data or each team that need, needs their own data is empowered to generate that data as well and sort of use that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, where I sit in an organization, in our organization, it's it's almost like the kind of frustration that I see is that I know that there's places where we could be operating with data and that we don't, right? And it's kind of the inertia argument of like, well, it's not there, so whatever. I won't bother that person or I won't go do the do, do the work. And, and, and kind of as data-savvy management, it's like I know the potential energy that's there that's not being put to good use, right? It's like, it's, it's like That's probably my kind of personal frustration. And then in the day-to-day, the probably most common kind of frustration is not the lack of data, how easily data gets stale and not knowing whether that matters or not, right? So you'll have a source pipeline, right, that will fail. Like there's from your side of the world where like the product team changed something and now it's like data is missing. Or it's like one step lower down where the ingestion pipelines are not, you know, are failing for some other reason, like credentials or whatever, or size, you know, suddenly hit a threshold that causes, you know, pipelines to fail. And it's going to take a while to fix, right? So how critical is that, right? Is actually, so, so it's probably the most common way I'm, me and, and, and our, our team can get frustrated is like, ah, the system is now behind by like two days. But it's also, is that a problem? Like, what is the thing that's affected by that, right? And in our case, we we have a high sensitivity to that latency because we operationalize a lot of our data, right? So, so you know, we're going to send bad, like, trial uh, expiry emails if if the data pipelines are, are, are stale, right? So, like, you know, if someone extended your trial and, like, you get an email that says your trial's over, it's like really the kind of stupidity you want to avoid, right? So we have a fairly high sensitivity to stale data. Uh, so that's probably the kind of frustration that I feel the most. But if someone were coming to me saying, oh, our data is always stale, I would say, well, well, hold on. Like, how do you build up some tolerance towards that? And like, do you really need to freak out about every time, you know, the data is a little behind? Like, can you create different SLAs for different kinds of data? And, and so that not everything is a is a fire drill, right? So that's that's probably the, the most common thing for us that I, that I deal with. Mm-hmm. Look, I think a lot of the tooling in place for analytics has been optimized for you know over a decade for answering questions in the time frame of weeks right so hmm. if you're trying to get numbers on revenue you know you close the books 
And then you have a couple of weeks before you have to tell Wall Street, right? So you can really kind of make sure all that ingestion works, really process the data, clean it, identify, you know, kind of holes in that data, ask people about why those things are there, et cetera. And I'd say our company and what our users tend to, you know, to use the music thing, we, we take that to, we, we, we turn that up to 11, right? Where we, we are taking analytics, distilled analytics, post-modeled analytics, right? So post-capture, post-ingestion, post-analysis and predictions and ML processes, post all that, and powering sales, marketing, customer success, support, et cetera, with that data. And so we have very stringent latency expectations on data that was not where BI historically has been. And so it's understandable that we'd be very frustrated by that. And I think we're all moving, you know, I I think of our product as like almost a catalyst for forcing the rest of the analytics stack to get more, not necessarily real time, but lower latency in in general and and, and surface failures more quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there with like also there are uh, probably... You know, there there needs to be different SLAs on on different data sets. Yeah, and it reminds me of a conversation I recently had, or earlier this year, with Mora Church, who is director of data science at Patreon, and she was talking about how they also deal with stale, not necessarily stale pipelines or stale data streams, but stale metrics and stale dashboards and things like that, to prevent people from being overwhelmed when they don't know exactly which dashboard they should be looking at or which dashboard is ultimately the thing that should guide them as a product manager or or something like that. And there are a couple of things that they do. And one of them is they define like these are really the key metrics and they matter and they, they should not break. They should never break. Of course. And then another thing that they do is they do these re- regular like pizza and sodas where they sit down and and clean up stuff and just like this is deprecated get rid of that get rid of that and all that stuff and i think the stale data problem that you're just talking about has probably these two angles on it like what are the what are the most important things that we can't break and then also like which analyses themselves are getting stale from a business perspective yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i've joked about this a few times where maybe if I were building a BI tool, which I'm not, I might say every dashboard, no matter what, like every chart, every dashboard has a built-in expiration date and you have to like forcibly extend it. I love that. And it's like, that's not an optional thing. It's like, it's just the built-in behavior. And and so it's, it's like, yeah. does the business care? Is anyone using this? And it's like, let's assume by default that everything is going to get sunset. And then have people go, no, I need this. I love this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, great. I mean, it's, it's almost like a forcing function for conversation. Exactly. And I feel like that's growing also in the data space is this verified. It's like a verified dashboard, verified analyses. And you can see when it was last verified. So I think we're seeing the birth of something like that. Yeah. To go back to something you said earlier, right, where, where a good leverage data team is not answering every question, right? They're building a system that allows everyone else in the company to also ask and answer questions. Which means you have to find a way to say, this is the surface I give you and I stand by it, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you're shipping every day, think, I hope, as a data team, 
some of the same things that you know we did at in larger software apply, right? So this is a release. This is going to be supported. This is the set of metrics or tables or or sets of schemas that we are saying these are like perfectly supported. Anything here that you think is wrong is like it's not, and we will always fix it if so. And then there's the, you know, okay, well, this is the experimental grounds. You can go play around, but like you'll get less support. If you ever go up and present that, like you're going to get dinged, right? All these kinds of things you could try to do and you might start to have to. So, so yeah, we, I think a lot about how do you communicate in the software layer, right? What is blessed data, I guess? That's maybe a weird term for it, but what is like approved or Mm -hmm. properly supported? And maybe by the way, that could solve some of the things that you probably encounter, which is if it reaches a certain support level, then it cannot instantly be deprecated by the source. So so if you want to change your eventing kind of model, that's fine for things that have potentially like low support thresholds. But if it's a critical thing, then maybe it has to go through a two-phase kind of deprecation. It's like step one is we are going to change it, Mm-hmm. And then you can communicate that out. And then a month later, two months later, whatever it is, like you can say, okay, now it's gone. Mm-hmm. And you're not allowed to do that in one move. Yeah. Which is how software does it, right? So Exactly. When you work on programming languages, like I did at Microsoft, APIs in programming languages are very stringent contracts between you know, the, the, the end user and the, the, the tool builder. And you cannot break those things overnight. No. I mean, Apple does, <laughs> but it comes with a lot of pain. But the proper way to do it is to signal that it's coming, right? So you you start emitting that it's deprecated, right? That this event cannot be depended on. Yeah. This API cannot be depended on. This language feature cannot be depended on because it's going to change. And then in a subsequent release, you enact the change. So no one can complain, right? Mm-hmm. This is actually really good. This is juicy stuff here. Yeah. Um, we're on the philosophy of how to maintain it data set. Yeah, like what's a contract? When does a data set become a contract? Exactly. This is great. I'm writing a blog post about uh, data quality right now and and how to maintain data trust and data literacy. So I am definitely going to quote you right there. Sweet. (laughs) So uh, we've already talked about a lot of uh, sort of industry changes and things like that. But I know you have some exciting thoughts that we, we sort of talked about a little bit before we started recording. And often I like to think about this as from the perspective of like what's changed in the data space or in this industry over just the past two years, because it's a really rapidly moving space. Um, but in in this case, I would love to also go further back. And also I think like that will be a fun segue into a moment where you realize something would maybe need to change or you would want to change something and 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 potentially segue that into like, why did you start census? <laughs> so I think I think you and I already talked a bunch about like what's changed in the long horizon, like the 10 plus year horizon. And and I think I would summarize that as one, uh, we have a lot more data than we did before. Mm-hmm. Capturing data 10 years ago was a, or 15 years ago was an opt-in, and now it's kind of an opt-out experience. So like we just have a lot more data at our fingertips. That's one. Two, we've already said like it's more interconnected. So the data that comes out of product and the data that comes out of the business are more interrelated than ever. And so you need a shared substrate to deal with that. And I think that 
gets us to the more recent past. So I think the biggest shift that I've seen in the last few years is the one that's obvious to everybody is, of course, the, the shift to the cloud data warehouse, right? But I think people adopted those because they were very smooth pricing curve, so everyone can get started. You didn't have to be a big company, which is how it used to be for a data warehouse. And of course, the, the user experience of a, of, a, of a modern cloud data warehouse is just so uh, so attractive, right? So you can have separated workloads, and it's, it's, it's really nice for multiple people to collaborate on a warehouse. But I think the actual pressure came from the quantity of data, the omnipresence of it, and the need to have it be interconnected. And so I think the biggest change was that, and it wasn't necessarily on people's minds. They were like, I love Snowflake. I love how it's easy to use. But, but what really was happening is you need to be able to join any data set to any data set. And the, the silo of like product analytics versus business analytics is no longer okay. And so the only way to solve for that, or there are like really fancy ways you could try to solve for that, mm-hmm. but the best way to solve for that is to put them in the same data substrate which is a cloud data warehouse, and then you can compute on it and join it and aggregate. And so I think that's what happened over the last few years. And then when you have that, so what I found was everyone had had been or has been investing in the data infrastructure to join all their data together. They were bringing in more data than they've ever had in the past, right? Not just from the product, but also from all these business tools. But what was lacking... And, and that's what led to, you know, kind of the birth of census three years ago now, so it was, it was a little while ago now, was that the analytics team was building out this amazing infrastructure, but they were using it primarily to answer questions looking into the past and for, like, slow-moving processes, like a quarterly review. And all that investment in data, whether it's analytics or infra, was just dramatically underutilized, under-leveraged on the rest of the business. And when I say the rest of the business, I really mean everything. I mean product team, sales team, marketing team, support team, finance team, customer success team, you name it, right? All of them were dying to be more data-driven. And I think most companies before Census existed were either, broadly speaking, under-informed with data, but at best, they were just very well-informed with their data, but they weren't driving day-to-day decisions with their data. And, I, and that's really where Census was born, right? It was in saying, how do we connect these two worlds? How do we take all of the interesting value that an analytics team can build and put that into the hands of where it can have the most impact, which is all sorts of business users? And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I joked, it's kind of like there was a left hand and a right hand in the business, and there was like the analysis side of the business and the kind of action side of the business, and they were not talking to each other. And, and, and that's why Census was born. And the reason it's called Census, by the way, is that it's tied to this idea that I always felt that there should be one shared substrate, one, one view of this. You don't have three different counts of the number of people in Iceland or in the United States, right? You have one. It's the Census. <laughs> and then that is what everyone depends on to make decisions, whether that's uh, how many parliamentarians you need, mm-hmm. how much taxation you should get, or or like financing decisions in the future, or loans, everything. Or how many buses we should plan for in that part of town, right? All of that is tied to the same core data. And so I thought companies should work the same way. That's 
Great. <laughs> I love that story about the name of the company. That's very good. Right. And it's a fun analogy. And it's something that we all dream of. Yeah. <laughs> a sense around our data. <laughs> exactly. And then eventually, I guess, if we get really good at it, we'll just have to take over the census. <laughs> exactly. That's right. But it's interesting because I think you're right. Data teams use the data warehouse to look back. And you were talking about and mentioning like, you know, maybe even as seldom as for quarterly reviews and how much of a waste potentially it is to be able to have all of this infrastructure, but not, I don't know, using it not to, to its fullest. What do you think was stopping them from doing that or being able to pipe those insights that they had operationalized, it was operationalized data and operationalized analytics, what was stopping them from being able to pipe those insights further even? There's a few things here, right? One is it historically has required engineering skills, right? Not just engineering skills, but also coordination between like an engineer who knows how to build it and the various applications in the mix, right? So I don't know how to move data from a data warehouse to HubSpot. So I need an engineer to do that. Okay, how do I do that well? Well, that requires real work. Exactly. But then it's even more subtle because, well, the engineer doesn't necessarily even understand what the needs are in HubSpot, right? Exactly. So it's a whole process just to kind of turn that into a feature that you can deliver, right? So yeah. someone says, hey, we need data from here to here. And that engineer probably needs a, program manager to go talk to the sales team, go like, well, what do you need in HubSpot? How does HubSpot work? What is the definition of a company in HubSpot? Mm -hmm. All these things. And so that is everything that we've abstracted, right? That's what our product does, which is to say, hey, you, you don't need to understand the depth of HubSpot because we do. You don't need to write the code to move data because we do. You don't need to manage API quotas because we do. And we understand the impedance between your warehouse and HubSpot, and that's what we help you resolve. That's one. But then there's also non-product things that I think were hindering people's ability to do this. So the first that I talk about a lot is people in business intelligence, when your job is reporting on what happened last quarter, last year, et cetera, your primary way of modeling data is in an aggregated form. You take all of the transactions and you say, how much money did we make, right? But when you're trying to operationalize data, when you're trying to put it into these systems, uh, whether they're sales systems, support systems, et cetera, you actually want to do it in a disaggregated way. I don't care about the total usage of a feature or the total revenue. I care about each individual's usage of a feature, each company's use of a feature, and each company's revenue and each user's revenue. So data professionals had to figure out how to model their data correctly in order to, to operationalize it. And so I think those are the, you know, there's all the technical reasons that we kind of resolved. And then that all that remains is the hard part, which is the interesting part, which is the modeling part, the data modeling part. Oh, this is so inspiring. This is so exciting to talk about. <laughs> really, like, I love the identification that you were making, like, I was literally hoping you would say that that would that would be the stopper. <laughs> That's the showstopper for people being able to build this. 
because it's actually uh, I'm working on another blog post right now, which is uh, and I'm preparing, preparing for the Coalesce conference, which is in December, which is called a hot techie name, uh, which I might rebrand a little bit, but it's called "Don't Hire a Data Engineer Yet." <laughs> sure. And again, this is this is with you know high respect for data engineering, and again, like uh, everything that we do as data people, data professionals, it entails a lot of data engineering, but this gap. You know, we tried having a data engineer that was working on a specific project and sort of trying to build something, but he was just so many steps removed from the, so many steps removed from the actual problem that ultimately I think it was way more powerful to build a team of data professionals that were also proficient in building all of the things that we really needed for ourselves um, with some support from engineering, which is a completely uh, different aspect than having someone that specializes in building integrations or specializes in building something because that really, really, really requires a lot more personal connections and sort of project management, really. Yeah. Super, super interesting. I I agree. So we've covered a lot of ground. (laughs) We've covered a lot of ground. I think, you know, I would still want to touch on sort of before we wrap this up, I would love to touch a little bit on sort of data trust. Mm-hmm. I think someone saying, I don't trust this data is a really common statement. What is your take on that? Why do people say that? Mm-hmm. It's a really, really big deal. And it's like this hidden tax on the whole company because it means people may not use data when they should and you won't necessarily even know, right? Because you may have built the analytics or you may have thought you, you've you done the work, but it's not actually put to use because people don't trust it. So I think there's a lot of ways in which people end up with untrusted data. And I think we're still in the very early days of resolving that. And the first, it's easy for people to not realize this, when you live only in analytics and BI, you think of all the reasons why you have untrusted data there, right? So your, your, your Looker dashboard, you're like, I don't trust it. But if you zoom out and look at the company you know, writ large, the reasons people don't trust data goes far beyond the BI team. It actually is tied to the fact that the way companies and people within companies get data is haphazard. It is fragmented. So they're actually hidden data pipelines all over your company. And some of those you don't even think of as data pipelines. It's like an integration that exists between your, you know, your support tool and Salesforce or something. And just because it's like when you bought the support tool, it, it did something. It, it, it plugged into Salesforce and did something. And so you don't even realize that like, that is a kind of data pipeline. It's part of the ecosystem of data in your system, in your company. And so the first... And hardest thing to do, which is the thing I, my team obsesses about, is how do we get more of a hub-and-spoke centralization model going for how data goes in and out of a company? So the cloud data warehouse is a big part of that, right? Because you can get all of your data in one. And it, again, it wasn't so long ago that you'd have multiple of those, right, in a single company. And, and so now we just have to figure out like a kind of a, a best way to broker data by and large to go all through this this infrastructure and then ideally through a single team 
that can own some percentage of it. I don't think a data team can own everything that's going on because it's like that doesn't scale at a certain size. But that you can route it through a central system that you can then put, to, to use a term that we used earlier, expectations and SLAs on. And it's a lot easier to make data trustworthy if there's only one place that everyone agrees it emanates from. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been the first and hardest thing is there is a lot of what I think of as like peer-to-peer connections in your company. There's a lot of things where the marketing and sales team have a connection and the support and sales team have a connection and the product and data team have a connection or the analytics team. And there is not a... People use all sorts of names for these things. They even talk about like, what is it these days? Like a data mesh or whatever. (laughs) And it's like data is going in every direction. uh, And more importantly, it's like you don't even realize that it's moving around. And so I think getting a handle on that is key. And I think a lot of what we are trying to accomplish is, is that. But even if you have that, that only opens up the possibility for the data organization to, to build the trust. And so how do you do that? Well, it's all the same way as you build trust in software, right? It's not by saying that everything is, is going to be perfect. That's guaranteed to be false. So you have to build a culture of A, continuous improvement, and being able to point at something that is being improved. <laughs> so, so you want to have testing, you want to have monitoring around your data, and you want to have clear definitions of what correct is, and you want to have a feedback loop with your users, which are the other people in the company on the data, because you can specify it all you want, there, you know, this is not going to be a, there's not a theorem prover on your data that's going to say it's correct. Like, There's no categorical sense of true. So I think it's about creating a culture of committing to a a certain quality bar and then continuously improving it and and having over time one throat to choke, one system to to kind of point at, Mm -hmm. to build trust in. Yeah. That's my view. View accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, excellent. I think I want to sort of maybe end this conversation talking a little bit about sort of data misconceptions and potentially how we can get over some of the data misconceptions and potentially help more teams get their analytics right and things like that. What do you think is, you know, some of the biggest misconceptions people have about data or product analytics, how that works? I think Trust and quality in data is a process, not an endpoint. It's not a state that you end up in. It's a it's a it's a way you you work, right? It's a culture. It's a it's a process. And the most common way I see people get in their get in the way of themselves, right? Like of not you know taking advantage of their analytics or their data, or or not engaging across teams in a company, is that they they make perfect the enemy of you know good enough. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to start with a very small piece of information, mm-hmm. potentially a single metric, a single column, you know, like, and start building trust around that and building usage around that rather than say, well, I can't share this information with the sales team or the marketing team because it's not 
perfect yet. It's not ready yet. And then they won't use it. Or if they do, they will misconstrue it and then it'll be worse because like, and then it'll go up to the CEO and then they'll say something and it's like the data team will be wrong. And it's like, no, they just overinterpreted the data. <laughs> and so it's a very real problem. Like that politics is very painful for the analysts. But I think you can't constantly hope for we're going to get the data right soon, eventually. Eventually, it'll be right. <laughs> you just have to kind of build in this idea that it can be a little bit wrong. And, and the key is to iterate and to, to start thinking about, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, right? Don't ship once a year. <laughs> Find a way to ship more often. And I think it's not necessarily a misconception people have from the outside world, but I think they, they view data as this thing that is like absolutely true. And it's like, that's not, that's not the point. Awesome. Truth is just a really, you know, <laughs> hard thing to, to get at anyway. So. I think these actually can work as really great final words uh, for this show. Boris, we should start small, great. potentially even a single metric, get that right and build the conversations around that and start somewhere and building the trust and um, ship often. I like that as well. <laughs> yeah, I think those are good takeaways for people. Yes, it was such a pleasure to have you on the right track. Uh, a crossover episode. We should definitely use this opportunity to hype your podcast. That's right. You you are one of the best episodes we've done of the, the sequel show. Uh, so thank you for joining ours as well. Big words, big words. I mean, we had a good time. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely went off on the most tangents of any episode I'd ever done. But uh, I think, hey, listen, to me, I think of this format as also conversational. So it's like me as well. Yeah, uh, that, this is what happens when two, two mathematicians get together. It's true. It's true. Excellent. Um, thank you so much for joining us on The Right Track, Boris. It was a pleasure having you on. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in The Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via avohq.com.